Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is John Deaton, managing partner of the Deaton Law Firm, who founded his law practice in 2006. John is also the founder of Crypto-Law.us, a Bitcoin, ETH, XRP, and crypto enthusiast, and an entrepreneur. A former Marine turned class action lawyer, John became interested in crypto in 2016 and eventually invested in RippleCoin, XRP. When the SEC sued Ripple over allegations that XRP was an unregistered security, John raised concerns about the agency's case, which he didn't think was warranted, and threatened to wipe out the value of XRP in a legal filing as a private citizen on his own behalf. Since then, we've seen this XRP and SEC case turn into what's been called the cryptocurrency trial of the century. I'm looking forward to talking to John about all that and much more. John, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate you inviting me on. Looking forward to our talk. I'd love to start these conversations with the guest's introduction to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. We know it's 2016, but could you describe your Genesis block to me? Sure. You know, it. I can't exactly remember what site I was on or whatnot, but I heard about Bitcoin and immediately read the Satoshi white paper was the first thing I did. And I sort of went down the rabbit hole. You know, I come from poverty, a single mother, six children living on welfare and food stamps in Detroit. And I know my mother didn't get her first checking account until she's in her 40s. Right. And when you're on welfare and food stamps, you don't have the ability to go to the bank, get a banking account. It's, it's almost like a foreign concept to people, not just around the world, but here still in the United States. And so the, the concept of those people being um, that are unbanked and the poor and, and this means of payment. I remember using the Western unions of the world where they take 10 percent. Right. Of the, if you're sending $100, your mom gets 90 at best. And that makes a lot of difference to people. And so that's what really sparked my interest, to be honest with you. And then you couple that with the monetary policy, printing money left and right. And so I became a huge big proponent and purchased it in 2016. And then just obviously started researching other tokens, uh, other projects, and uh, invested in Ethereum and invested in XRP. And those are the only three I owned probably until 2019 before I bought maybe something else. Uh, the typical story of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Thanks, John. And I'd love to hear what your first impression was of XRP and, and why you made that decision to invest at the time. Yeah, I bought Bitcoin several times. Uh, I still own Bitcoin. And um, when I looked into XRP, to be honest with you, I'm very typical of the, the XRP purchaser. I wasn't aware of the company Ripple. I just looked at it and I, I was going to buy a few hundred bucks worth of XRP. But I noticed something very different about Bitcoin and XRP and the ETH that I bought. When I purchased Bitcoin, it took about 10 minutes for it to deposit, right? The transaction, Bitcoin mines every uh, blocks every 10 minutes. So a Bitcoin transaction is like 10 minutes. But if it's peak time and the, and the chain is active, it could take an hour before it settles. And I did it with XRP and in three seconds, it was deposited. I was like, wow, that's... That's different. And so then I started researching it more 
and got into the history of XRP and how Bitcoin developers, uh, David Schwartz, who is the CTO of Ripple, and Jed McCaleb, who used to be a part of Mt. Gox, and he was a Bitcoin developer, and then he developed with David Schwartz and Arthur Brittle, the XRP ledger. They decided that they wanted to, to build a different type of Bitcoin, in their words, a better Bitcoin that didn't require energy, that was built on a different uh, protocol. This is a consensus protocol, not a proof of work. And they pre-mined the coins and all of that. And so very different start than, than Bitcoin, but uh, the, being able to settle in three to six seconds. Bitcoin, you could do transactions on the, on the layer one network, seven to 15 a second. XRP is 1,500 a second. And uh, like I said, three seconds. And then cost. There's a, a guy, Michael Arrington, and he's famous. He did a video. Uh, he owns Arrington Capital. And he moved $50 million worth of XRP in five seconds, and it cost 30 cents. You know what I mean? And so when you think of that, it became kind of a no-brainer to me. Because I don't know, Jacob, if you've wired money anytime in the last couple of years, but even a domestic wire transfer in the bank takes three to five days. Internationally can take seven business days or even 10 business days. And so, you know, we can send an email with a photograph to Nigeria in seconds, but we can't send money. And so just that kind of concept was very attractive to me, whether it's Bitcoin or XRP, because then, you know, I'm a capitalist and I, and I talked about, think about people have a smartphone before they'll ever have a bank account. And so you could be in Nigeria and create a website and you basically can sell straw hats or something, right? And engage in a marketplace using cryptocurrency in real time and, and, and be paid for your services in seconds. So to me, it was an ability to bring, to lift people up. It's the concept. Now, obviously, today's state of affairs doesn't necessarily represent those visions, right? And that's why Bitcoin paper was originally electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash and now the Bitcoin has turned more into a narrative of digital gold and a store of value versus that. And then you had the, the block wars and Bitcoin Cash became the, the payment vehicle. So that's really what attracted me, though, to XRP. And then after a few hundred dollars before I was going to invest real money, I started doing a little more research, obviously. Then, of course, I come across... I know I realized Ripple's connection and their founder's connection to XRP and, and all of that. Could you could you explain for those who might think Ripple and XRP are still the same entity? Could you explain what the difference is between Ripple, the company, and XRP, the token? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't speak for Ripple. I've never sat down and had conversations with the people at Ripple, but I would guess that they're if they could go back in time and change anything. It would be that they they didn't allow the narrative that XRP be called Ripple, right? It became the Ripple coin versus the XRP coin. But XRP is the native token. It's the native currency to the XRP ledger. And the XRP ledger is the network. And just like other bot blockchain type networks, it has a native currency. Ethereum blockchain has Ether. Bitcoin blockchain has Bitcoin. Cardano blockchain has ADA. And so that's what XRP is. Ripple is a company that is in the private sector that has a board of directors and it has shareholders. Ripple, the company, didn't actually make XRP or create XRP. People who created Ripple first created the XRP ledger, Jed McCaleb, David Schwartz, right? And Chris Larson's a co-founder. And they created the network in 2012, the XRP ledger. And it's this great technology. And what they did, and this is what's controversial to a lot of people, and 
what Ripple gets criticized for a lot, especially from Bitcoin maxis, is that the founders allocated 20% of the tokens. There were 100 billion tokens created. So Bitcoin has 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be formed, right? XRP has 100 billion XRP tokens that were created. 20%, so 20 billion, went to the founders. The two co-founders got 9 billion each, and the other developer got 2 billion. And then they took 80 billion XRP and gifted it to the, a company, Ripple, that they formed. And so because of that, initially people called it the Ripple coin, right? Or they would even call XRP Ripple, and it became interchangeable. But there's a very, very important distinction because Ripple has shareholders where they sold shares of their company to venture capitalists. They didn't do what Ethereum did, which have an ICO where they didn't have a blockchain yet. And then they take the funds from the ICO and then they create the technology. That's an ICO initial coin offering. It's what Ethereum did in, in the beginning. And if any one of your listeners are familiar with the Bill Hinman speech in June 14, 2018, where he said Bitcoin and Ethereum in 2018 were no longer securities. He had a caveat where he said, setting aside the fundraising that accompanied Ether, meaning that that was an ICO, that was a security, but today it's sufficiently decentralized and so it's not. But Ripple didn't go that way, right? The technology was created, they sold shares to venture capitalists, and then they utilized the XRP that they own. Today, they own about 53%. So something like 51 to 53 billion XRP that they've put into a cryptographic escrow, meaning that they can every month 1 billion XRP is released from the escrow and then they, they sell some of that XRP for their on-demand liquidity project platform or whatever reasons and maybe they use 100 million of it and then the 900 million or whatever's left goes back into the cryptographic escrow. That way, they no one can dump on the market, right? It, it, it's this organized way of releasing the tokens that was created. The best way to show you the difference is that you can use XRP on platforms that sell pre-IPO shows. There's a company called Link2, for example, and they integrate it with the exchange Uphold. And you can take your XRP and buy shares of Ripple with your XRP. So XRP is a currency, right, itself. It's not a security. It's more like a commodity. In 2015, uh, what a lot of people don't know about XRP, it's the first regulated cryptocurrency in the United States. In 2015, FinCEN and the Department of Justice basically settled with Ripple and said that Ripple had not complied with the banking laws of the United States, banking secrecy laws. So Ripple paid $700,000 and agreed that they would register with FinCEN. And FinCEN declared XRP, quote, convertible virtual currency. And so that's a big deal because the SEC was aware of that. And they have a sharing agreement with FinCEN. And they didn't allege that XRP was a security in 2015 or 16 or 17 or 18 or 19, right? Seven and a half years go by. And then all of a sudden, they claim that XRP, I know we'll get into that. But that's a great question because a lot of people say that XRP is centralized. XRP is a token, right? Ripple is centralized. It's a company. XRP is the currency of the XRP ledger, which is decentralized. The controversy, Jacob, is that because Ripple owns 51, 52, whatever it is, percent of the XRP, people call it centralized, right? But that is conflating token concentration with network centralization. 
So the network itself is sufficiently decentralized, and I can go into that if you want, but, but that's a huge distinction between the two. Thanks for that, John. That was a really great answer. And so, yeah, I'd love if you could go into that on the difference between the token, because realistically, with most crypto tokens, they're mainly pseudonymous. And so, sure, they could be in different wallets, but it's hard to know if it is truly decentralized in that one person doesn't own 51% or one group doesn't own 51%. It's difficult to prove that because you can't go around and KYC each wallet. So in Ripple's case or in XRP's case, where you have that 53% or whatever it is, tokens held by one entity, but then you said the network is decentralized. Could you explain that distinction and why the network is decentralized? Sure. Great question. And and I'll tell you, it's, listen, token ownership is a problem if we're going to be honest, right, with everything, if you take Bitcoin and you take the first, you know, the top 5%, they control a lot of the Bitcoin, right? Satoshi Nakamoto, right, his account has over a million Bitcoin, right? Now, it doesn't equal 50%, but if you look at Ethereum, we've demonstrated that, as you said, they're disguised. There were multiple emails. And so you could have someone who bought 10% of the Ether ICO, but it's in 10 different wallets. And Ripple sort of gets a little punished, to be honest with you, because of the transparency, because everyone knows they have 51%. And so I've told people that's a fair criticism of XRP, right? And a lot of people on, on my side, the XRP hosts, They may not like me saying that, but it's a fair criticism to say one entity owns so much of the token. I don't like that. I wouldn't argue with that person. But if they say XRP itself and the network is is centralized, I will argue with that because here here are the facts. All right. The XRP ledger is based on a consensus protocol relying on validator nodes to record and verify transactions. It achieves consensus without incentivizing any party. So it's not like proof of work where you reward the miners. For consensus to be reached, 80% of the validators must agree. There are over 170 validators with 900 nodes operating across the world. Ripple runs six validators of the 170, which means Ripple controls less than 4% of the network. Now, the CTO of Ripple has come out publicly and stated that if 80% of the validators vote to burn Ripple's escrow, they could do it. And and if you think about it, just recently on uh, the Solana network, there was a subsection that voted to take control of a Wells wallet to avoid... Uh, mass liquidation at once. And so I'm not saying those are apples to apples, but the point being is that although Ripple owns 50 some percent, if 80% on the network said you must burn it, that that could be accomplished. And so that's very, very important. And like I said already, the people, they conflate those two. Well, Ripple owns 50%, therefore it's centralized. No, the network is not centralized. Ripple actually uh, proposed an amendment on the XRP ledger and for two years it was vetoed. So you can't say they control the network because they don't, right? Now, if you want to criticize them for allocating 20% to themselves, if you want to criticize them as an entity for owning too much of the token, you know, go at it. But don't say things that are not true. Right. Because this is what I'll remind. I I own Bitcoin and I own more Bitcoin than I do XRP. Okay, so I, I, I am into Bitcoin, but I believe in being honest. Right. And so when we have this argument where people say XRP, Bitcoin maxis will point to XRP and say it's centralized for the reason we went over. I remind them that just a few years ago. 75% of all the hash rate in Bitcoin mining was in China. And I remind them that there was one week that Bitmain blocked, mined 42% of all the Bitcoin blocks, right? 42% ain't that far from 51%. So at that moment in time, 
you could argue that XRP is the network is less is more decentralized, right? Now I'm not saying that today, right? Because I, I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is that XRP ledger today is more decentralized than the Ethereum network. And I'll give you an example. Ethereum is moving to proof of stake as away from proof of work. Proof of stake rewards those who have the most tokens, right? And so those that have the most tokens have the most influence on the network. And Mark Cuban had a debate with Bitcoin Maxis and they asked him, why do you believe in Ethereum? And his answer was, I believe Vitalik Buterin will figure it out. Okay, that's not the shining example of decentralization when you're relying on the developer itself. Again, I own Ethereum. I don't believe Ethereum today is a security. And, and so I would have, if the SEC would have sued the Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik Buterin claiming that today's Ethereum is a security, I would have done exactly what I've done in the XRP case. You know what I mean? But I think that if we're going to have an honest conversation about centralization and decentralization, the first step, Jacob, is to distinguish the network from token ownership. It's such a good point, John. And I really like that example of how you walked through the difference between the centralization maybe of the tokens, but the decentralization of the network itself. And I think we're in such the beginning stages that people often confuse the two. And they think that, for example, if someone owned 50% of Bitcoin, that that doesn't really give them much in terms of governing the network. Exactly. Right, They can't go out and redo transactions. That comes down to the node level. Whereas if they own 51% of the nodes, well, now you have control over the network largely. So that, that's such a great point. Just to get to the lawsuit, I'd love to hear your explanation on why you wanted to join this lawsuit, why you thought it was important that someone stand up for the rights of the XRP holders. I've talked to some other lawyers about autonomous lawyering and really taking the law into your own hands, which I think you did here. Could you explain like what the initial lawsuit was, SEC versus Ripple, and why you chose to get involved? Thank you. It's a great question because I'll tell you something. I could have never predicted that I'd be talking to you today with 68,100 XRP holders from around the world joining with me. Because Jacob, what started was, I was on Twitter and I saw that Brad Gardinghouse of Ripple in December of 2020 said, the SEC is gonna sue Ripple. And so obviously as an XRP holder, that piqued my attention. And so I was waiting for that lawsuit to drop and it dropped on December 22nd of 2020 and I printed it out because I'm one of these old guys, right? I like this, the physical copy. So I printed out the 90 pages or whatever it is and it was Christmas Eve and I was reading it and I got really to the first paragraph and the first paragraph tells you everything. It says that Ripple sold a quote, digital asset security called XRP. So they, right then and there, they didn't say it. they used an asset and sold it as a security. They said they're selling a digital asset security. And then they used the phrase from 2013 to present, which means today's XRP. So not like that scenario where I talked about Bill Hinman said with Ether set aside the initial fundraising, right? Today's Ether is not, an, is not a security. This was today's XRP is a security. So immediately I'm like, oh, wait, that's that's bad news. Wow. And then I started reading the complaint and I saw things like a paragraph that said the token itself, the very nature of XRP, because XRP is fungible. Every XRP holder in the world entered into a common enterprise with each other and Ripple. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most overbroad Vague, I mean, it's not vague, it's just over-inclusive. It can't be. And and uh, my girlfriend was wrapping Christmas presents. And, and I literally, on Christmas Eve, I was like, I, I got to go to my man cave. It's like an apartment above the garage. I got to read this. And I read it, and I came back at 1 in the morning. And I looked there, and I said, I think I'm going to sue the SEC. 
and she looked at me like I'm crazy, right? She she's graduating law school, and so she she's not unfamiliar with the law, but she said what? And then I explained it to her, and I said they're gonna delist XRP. Like if Coinbase was going to go public at that time, right? They were talking about going public, and if you, Jacob, you you know this, if you are a general counsel. And you're your Kraken exchange or you're the Coinbase exchange or your crypto.com. And you learn that one of the tokens you're selling, the SEC is claiming is a security. Even if you disagree, you're going to usually take the safe road and say, well, if they win the case and they get SC, the XRP declared a security, they can then come back to us. And say, at a minimum, you knew we were claiming it was a security on this day and you didn't do anything about it. So I just knew that the conservative choice would be to delist XRP and people might get wiped out. And it offended me, to be honest with you, that our government was doing this because I want your listeners to think about this. I told you already that in 2015, the U.S. government said it was virtual currency. And the SEC didn't act. So seven and a half years go by. It's traded openly and publicly in the United States and across the world in over 200 exchanges. The SEC says nothing. Jacob, in, in June of 2018, Ripple filed with the SEC that they were buying 9% of MoneyGram. And in this disclosure to the SEC, they informed the SEC that they're going to use XRP with MoneyGram. They're going to transfer XRP to MoneyGram. The SEC allowed that in 2000, June of 2018. But then we fast forward 18 months later, and as Jay Clayton, as chairman, is walking out the door the day before his, he resigns, his tenure is up, he votes against what I believe Hester Peirce and Elad, it's a, allegedly Fox Business said it was a three to two vote. No one knows that for sure, but that's what's been reported. And he votes to bring this lawsuit. And now they're claiming that the XRP that was traded from Ripple to MoneyGram and from MoneyGram into the secondary market, that those two were unregistered securities. You just allowed it 18 months ago. Like, and now you're claiming that what you allowed are unregistered securities. So it made no sense to me. And I made that decision literally on Christmas Day. And uh, for the next eight days, I basically went into my little cave and got on the laptop and wrote what's called a writ of mandamus. And what that basically means is all I was saying was I filed in federal court asking the judge, and, and it's it's very unusual to do it the way I did it, but asking the judge to order the SEC to amend the complaint to only allege what they could prove, right? You can't prove the token itself is a security. So just allege what you normally allege. Normally, you would allege the way Ripple sells XRP, and when Ripple sold XRP in 2013 on this date of this person or this business, that constituted an unregistered sale of a security. That's fine. I wouldn't have done anything. But to say everybody who owns XRP owns an unregistered security, it is, it's reckless, it's dangerous, and it made no sense. And I, I said in the writ of mandamus that I filed on January 1, 2021, so basically eight or nine days after the Ripple case was filed, I wrote in the mandamus that this lawsuit either was used as a weapon for some reason that I didn't know, that I know a lot now, or they're coming after crypto. Because if you take the paragraphs, Jacob, you could, you could put in ETH, or you could put in ALGO, or you could put in Cardano or anything else, and the same paragraphs would equally apply to each cryptocurrency. And so it's a very dangerous complaint. And that's basically what I did. The truth is I was sort of, I guess, a pissed doctor who had a law degree and said, I want to do something about this. And I did that. And I, I never knew that it would turn into this movement that it's turned into. 
Well, I think it's so important because initiatives like this, you going out there and putting your reputation, putting yourself on the line, your time as well and money, it that's how you stand up to the government. That's how you stand up for what you believe to be right. And then that way, someone has to do that, right? Someone has to stand up and, and good on you for being the one to do that. And thank you from the community, really, for you going about and doing that because I think it is a really important thing, especially when you have a new technology like this that is still being sorted out. And then, yeah, you look at the the examples of all these other ICOs that occurred, right? Whether or not Ripple or XRPs was an ICO. But the, the point is, one of the core tenets of the SEC is to protect investors. And I saw, I had some Ripple and I saw what happened to the price after they started the lawsuit, right? right. Back, in, back in 2020. It tanked. Yeah. And that hurt a lot of retail investors. And if your goal is to protect them, that might not be the way to do it by roping the token in with the company in a lawsuit. Why Why do you think they did it? Do you like, given what you know now, I don't know how much you can speak on it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on why the SEC included XRP, the token, in the lawsuit. Well, you know, that's a, a, a great question. And, and I'll tell you, before I, I answer it, I want to. to people to know that it's not just me, right? Probably the most respected former SEC commissioner is a guy named Joseph Grunfest. He's a professor at Stanford Law School. He's a Democrat, lifelong Democrat. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan to be on the SEC as a commissioner. He actually helped the Ether co-founders and acted as a liaison with the SEC to, to discuss issues that you discussed, like when you discussed with Hester Peirce, can a token transform from a security and initially until later to, to a non-security? He worked with them, and he's a very unbiased person. Well, he wrote a letter to Jay Clayton and Bill Hinman and Hester Peirce and all of the commissioners and all of the different directors of the SEC before they filed a lawsuit. And he pled with them. He said, since you're not claiming fraud, because there is no fraud alleged against Ripple in this case. It's a strict unregistered or non-registered case. And Joseph Grunfest said, there's no exigency here. You've allowed this for seven and a half years. There's a new administration coming in. If you file this case, innocent retail investors who have no connection to Ripple are going to get severely damaged and hurt. And he even said, exchanges will delist it and the liquidity in the United States will dry up and people will get damaged. And then he said, also, if you do this, but you didn't go after ETH, you're picking winners and losers in so many words. And he said that it calls into question the use of the commission's discretion. Like, why are you giving this one? And he said, there's no material distinction between Ethereum and XRP. And then he also said, in the history of the SEC, there had never been all the people who were behind filing a lawsuit were leaving immediately. Jay Clayton left, Bill Hinman left, the director of enforcement who helped write the complaint, he left. He went with Bill Hinman's firm, with Bill Hinman. The director of trading and markets left. Like all of these people were dropping this bombshell, as you said, the trial, the cryptocurrency trial of the century, as they're walking out the door. And he said that that raises obvious concerns. Don't do this. And they ignored his letter. And so I share that with you because there are some of my critics out there that will say, oh, Deaton's a conspiracy theorist because he's a disgruntled investor. Let me make it clear, Jacob. Not only do I own more Bitcoin than I do XRP, I own more Ethereum than I do XRP. So when I talk about Ethereum's free pass, I'm arguably talking against my own book, right? Because I own ETH, but I don't think ETH is a security. And I would have done exactly what I did here with Ripple. But you can't avoid these conflicts that went down. So in my writ of mandamus, before I learned everything that I've learned, I said, this looks like it could have been used as a weapon or personal gain. There's these, these, this makes no sense. Or they're, they're, they're alleging the token itself because they're coming after crypto. 
right? Because if XRP is deemed a security, if the SEC gets what it wants, Jacob, every altcoin on the market is then a security. Everything, including ETH, right? They would all be, because we have to understand something. Every altcoin, when it's first created, arguably meets this, the test of Howie, right? Because it's at its inception. So the first few sales that you make, there, there's not a lot of people involved. It's not decentralized. The developers are still developing. And so arguably, it's why Hester Peirce's safe harbor proposal makes such perfect sense. And, and to this day, I don't understand why Jay Clayton and them didn't move forward with that. But, uh, but we've uncovered that there are serious, serious gross appearances of impropriety and conflicts of interest. In fact, an independent organization named Empower Oversight, they're not into crypto, they don't own crypto. They saw what we were doing in the XRP community and they sent some FOIA requests to the SEC. The SEC fought them, they sued the SEC, and lo and behold, they uncovered it. Well, we learned that Bill Hinman was warned by the SEC that he was an ongoing profit-sharing partner with Simpson Thatcher, his law firm. It wasn't like a retirement. He made $15 million from his law firm while at the SEC in his profit-sharing agreement. With Jacob, his law firm was a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, right? So he's collecting $15 million from his law firm, a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. He then gets up on June 14th, 2018, and gratuitously says, is not a security. Setting aside the fundraising, Ethereum's not a security. That would never pass any kind of conflicts analysis, right? Because his own SEC ethics office warned him. And I have the email, it's on my site, Crypto Law, that Empower got. They said that he was barred from having any contact with his law firm because of this ongoing profit sharing partnership he had. And he met with those same partners three times after the ethics office told him, you can't meet with them anymore. So as in ethics, if he would have submitted this speech to the ethics office and said, oh, you're about to give Bitcoin and Ethereum a regulatory free pass. That's big news. Ethereum shot up like the charts through the roof that day. And they would have said, well, we got to make sure there's no conflicts. Bill Hinman, do you own Bitcoin or ETH? No. Well, do your family members own it? Is there Simpson Thatcher? Is there any connection? Oh, Simpson Thatcher is a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Bill, you can't give this speech. There's the appearance, not saying that you, you're doing anything illegal, but the appearance of impropriety and favoritism, right, is so big. Let someone else give the speech. And so this is the kind of stuff that's been uncovered. And here's the thing to know, too, is that Jay Clayton swore at his confirmation that he wouldn't vote to not bring an enforcement action against one of his firm's clients, right? He's, if one of his firm's clients were going to be prosecuted, there was a danger that he would vote, no, don't bring a prosecution against one of his firm's clients. Well, he didn't do that. But what he did is he voted to go against one of his law firm's competitors and voted for an enforcement action against Ripple because the, the, the firm Consensus is owned by a guy named Joe Lubin. He's the founder of Consensus, which promotes 100% Ethereum. Joe Lubin is also co-founder of Ethereum and was reported to own 10% of the Ether ICO, which is, makes him a billionaire, as you can imagine. Well, his firm is represented by Jay Clayton's firm. And Jay Clayton's partners were hired to become Deputy General Counsel of Consensus. And we know that Bill Hinman, through the litigation, emailed Mr. Lubin and had meetings, four to six meetings in six months. And then, of course, Ethereum is blessed, right? And then Jay Clayton, a couple months before the, uh, the case was brought, one river made a $1 billion bet on Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then where does Jay Clayton immediately go after leaving? 
he goes to one river, right? Who bet on Bitcoin and ETH. And so you have all of these appearances. And I've never come out and said anyone broke the law, but I have come out and said this warrants an investigation, right? We need to look into these conflicts and see if there was any type of inappropriate. And so that's, I've on record many times as saying the lawsuit was used as a weapon to suppress XRP and uh, to give an advantage to Bitcoin or ETH. And uh, I don't think that that is even debatable with the evidence that we've, we've uncovered since. I know that was a long answer. I apologize. No, that's what this is for. This is for long answers. I appreciate that because it's a, I find it helpful to hear people like you go through the thought process and explain the full reasoning rather than cutting you off after a 30-second soundbite or something. And with that in mind, what we see a lot of is these headlines that people read regarding the XRP versus the SEC case and just you see a, a thing here and there about what's going on. But I think a lot of people sometimes forget that there's a lot more to it than just the headline. And I'd love if you could give an update on where the current stage is in this lawsuit and what's on the horizon over the next few months, because I know it is still ongoing. And I mean, who knows how long it's going to go for, but I could, I'd love if you could just give us a quick, not even a quick, but just an update on where things are at. Well, we're, we're sort of at the final stretch. The case was filed over 18 months ago. Discovery is over. All the fact witnesses have been deposed. Bill Hinman was deposed, for example, in the case. Obviously, the CEO, Brad Garlinghouse, all of those depositions are over. And also experts have been disclosed. There were 16 experts in this case. Now, that's a big deal because I'm sure you're aware of the library case that the SEC's brought. The SEC doesn't have an expert in that case, right? And there are no experts from the SEC. But in this case, the SEC has eight experts. Ripple has eight experts. There, Those depositions are over. And the judge has scheduled um, a two separate dates. One is in July, and that is for a Daubert motion, where Ripple or the SEC can challenge one of those experts, basically say their methodology is not up to par and that their opinions don't meet that methodology. And so these would be basically motions to to preclude an expert witness from testifying. That Those briefs are due in July, and I, as amicus counsel, have filed a request to be involved with one of the experts. I won't get into names and whatnot because there's a motion to seal that's pending that the judge hasn't acted on. But one of the experts I've asked that's relevant to XRP holders, um, and we could talk about the general testimony, I've asked to be heard on that. The judge hasn't decided that request yet. And then finally, there's a date for summary judgment motions. And for your audience, Summary judgment is basically asking the judge to rule one way or the other. XRP is not a security. XRP is a security. XRP was a security in the early years, but it's no longer today. Whatever the judge is going to rule. And those are all due. All briefs are due in November of this year. But we can basically assume the judge isn't going to turn around in late November and give a decision of this magnitude by the end of the year. So I would say we're looking at the end of the first quarter, let's say March, anywhere February, March or April of next year, where the judge comes down for a ruling. And her ruling could end the case completely, or it could end parts of the case she could possibly hypothetically rule that there are issues of fact for a jury to decide. But I anticipate from what I know that the parties aren't really interested in going to a jury, that they're going to agree on enough facts where the judge can say, well, these are all the facts. They're not disputed. And so therefore, there's only a question of law for me based on these facts that are not being disputed is XRP a security? And and I will be allowed to speak on that through, through an amicus brief. Um, um, and so that that's where we're at, basically, in the case. Thanks, John. And as 
someone who's looking at it from the XRP holder side, what do you think the I like? Is there an ideal outcome here, and is that a realistic possibility at this stage? Yeah the the ideal outcome that I'm that I'm confident about is that the judge will do what Judge Castell did in the Telegram case, and and state that the token itself is just alphanumeric code. It, it's a token, right? And that it isn't a security. And then only look at, well, did Ripple sell it? And, and this is what I'm saying to the court. I don't take a position on whether Ripple, XRP, the way Ripple sold it in 2013 or 2014 or 2015. I think the SEC can make a case if they were focused. See, the problem is the SECs went with this Every cell under the under the world <laughs> at all times is a security. But if they were hyper-focused like they should have been and said that this transaction in 2013, that was an unregistered security because there were no other developers on the XRP ledger at that time. That could be a case they could meet. And so there is a, a avenue where the judge finds that some very early sales of XRP constituted an investment contract. But today it's not because it's sufficiently decentralized. And that's why I meant when I said earlier that arguably every altcoin starts out as a security. So I'm going right back to where Ripple was given the gift at the 80 billion XRP. And let's say, and I don't know this specifically, but let's say, the very first transaction with XRP, they give to an investor and say, we will give you an option contract on a billion XRP at eight cents, right? And, and you can exercise that in the next four years if you invest $20 million. I'm baking these numbers up in my head, Jacob, so I want your audience to know I'm just giving the hypothetical. Okay, that could be considered an investment contract, right? It's an option contract, so there's something there. But today, when we fast forward, you have hundreds of developers on the XRP ledger. The XRP ledger is an open source, permissionless, distributed ledger technology that anyone can access. I could go on the XRP ledger right now, live with you if I want it, and move money on the XRP ledger. I could go on something I didn't tell you about the XRP ledger, it had the world's first decentralized exchange inside the XRP ledger, right? Built within it is a DEX, decentralized exchange. You can buy other tokens, casino coin or locks and other tokens that have been created. You can trade them on that. You can move money from you, from your XRP account to another XRP holder's account on the ledger all over the world. And so today's token and technology is very, very different than it was in the beginning. So there's a way for the SEC to win partially and Ripple to get the clarity they want that ongoing and future sales of XRP are not a security. And of course, XRP holders, all we care about and why I'm involved is for the court to declare secondary market sales independent of Ripple are not securities and were never securities. And so it's a little bit of victory for everyone. And that's what's shameful, Jacob, is that this case is so ripe for a settlement, right? Where Ripple could pay a fine for these early sales and the technology could blossom and innovation could continue. And the SEC could say, we held a firm, a company accountable for our securities laws and still protect investors. But that's not what they're doing, obviously. And that, that's what's so disheartening. You know what I mean? 68,000 XRP holders from over 61 countries around the world. XRP holders in Ukraine, XRP holders in Russia, XRP holders in Venezuela, XRP holders in Nigeria, Australia, everywhere around the world have come together to, to fight this government overreach and intrusion. And so ultimately, I think we're going to win, to be honest. But it's painful to get there, unfortunately. Yeah, and expensive too, I can imagine. <laughs> well, Ripple, Ripple's Brad Guardinghouse at Consensus, the, 
that just took place in Austin, Texas, he gave a update on stage. And he stated, when all said and done, Ripple will pay $100 million in legal fees. Right? $100 million. That's just staggering. That is. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just staggering. And so it, it's painful, but, but I think it'll be worth it in the end. Well, and it's it's so important that relationship of a security and to establish that something like when you do an ICO and you initially sell money, that's going to be funds and they're counting on your efforts, right? But there can be a point realistically with a blockchain where those efforts aren't needed anymore or those efforts are wide enough that there isn't one person you can point to as these efforts are going to make a difference from a managerial or entrepreneurial perspective. And I think that's something we're going to start to see more of. And maybe this case is the one that really decides that because when you're raising money and I'm giving you money and you're going to go do something because I've given you that money and my investment is going to go up because of those efforts, that's the security. And there's a lot, I'd say, like you said, any ICO or any offering starts out that way, except Bitcoin, which in return for the coins, they actually gave energy and they actually had to do the work themselves, which we could start to see more of in the future as a way of getting around these rules, which is an interesting thought experiment to go through. But I'd I'd love to talk a bit about you with you, John, how you run a class action like this. Like when I saw the numbers that are behind this lawsuit and behind you and, and you're working with, I was like, holy shit, this guy has might have a lot of emails coming in. Like it's oh, a yeah. lot, it's a lot to deal with. Could you walk me through like what, what that's like for those who might never have done a class action of this magnitude? Well, it's 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 ironic because the SEC has in in pleadings that they filed before the court. They've taken issue with me on social media. And my response to them is, I'm not sure how you expect me to communicate with 60,000 people, right? And so Twitter has become obviously a pin to my Twitter handle is, is where you can sign up to join if you're an XRP holder or you just believe in the case. And I established CryptoLaw.us to sort of be a, a focal point where to help with the emails and the communication I have everything in the case, in the Ripple XRP case is posted on there, every decision, every transcript, every document that's been filed in the public and other things, Hester Purse's statements, um, the Telegram case, the Howie case, anything that's relevant to the case so that they can, what I've learned through this process too is that the SEC, Gary Gensler wants to protect us from ourselves, right? It's this nanny state, if you will. I know. remember one of the senators said, why are you acting like everybody's daddy? I don't know if you remember seeing that, uh, the senator from Louisiana, Kennedy. And, and I've learned that people don't need that level of protection. You know what I mean? They do need protection from fraud. They do need protection from dumping, uh, pump and dump scams and things of that nature. But they don't necessarily need to be protected the way they are. And so there is this concept that you're talking about, that you talked about, which is at what point is it sufficiently decentralized where the laws don't need to be applied? But back, I know I digressed a bit, but back to your question, it's been onerous. I'll tell you that it's also been massively beneficial because there's this concept now, Jacob, that I think is going to be taught in law schools called decentralized justice, right? Not just the decentralization of blockchain and finance, but I go on Twitter and I say, I need this. And I have hundreds of people who find it for me. The uh, the internet sleuths that are out there are unbelievable. They're unbelievable. Crypto law, I would tell anyone that's interested, You and there's no sponsors. I don't make money. This is all out of my own pocket. There's nothing on there that's money generating for me. So when I mention crypto law, I want people to know that. But I've created a video library where I'm backing up everything I say. So when I say to you these conflicts of interest and I say to you this or that, you can go to the crypto law, go to the video library. And because I've been able to utilize this decentralized justice and I I ask people for things and they find them, we then put them on that site. And it's a timeline and it goes through the Hinman speech and it goes through the secret meetings that that led up to the Hinman speech 
when the eighth free pass was given. We have, there was a memo that was written by Perkins Coie that basically Hinman's speech followed. Of course, Perkins Coie is a member of the Enterprise Ether Alliance, Ethereum Alliance. And we have that lawyer, his name's Lowell Ness. He gets up in a video and he says, yeah, I wrote this memo and Hinman tracked it. And so I cite that, but we have him admitting to that. We have just all the evidence. And so that's been like a phenomena that has been very beneficial. I will say that my, my staff at the Deaton Law Firm We've been overwhelmed at times when you get 4,000 emails, for example, in, in a week that you're normally not used to getting. They haven't been that happy with me at times, but I, I take care of them. So so it's, it's a very unique thing, and I think it's going to lead to innovation itself and in how you information source things, I guess, is the way to look at it, right? And so crypto law, we've been able to use, the, I created an app where all you do is put in your address in the United States and you can send a message and it goes and you just hit enter and it immediately goes to your Congress representative and the two senators in the state that you live in. And we've created over 50,000 messages to every senator and every congressional representative in the United States. And then there's an international XRP holder tab. And right now there's 26, 27,000 international XRP holders are signed up asking the congressional committees to launch an investigation into all these issues that you and I have been talking about. But So it's been both. It's been a bit daunting at times, but it's also just a wealth of sources at your fingertips when you, when you do it this way. And so I, I would be remiss not to pay homage to my internet sleuths, right? My investigators that are out there giving up their time. It's not just me who gives up my time for this cause. That They do it as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a group effort, but congratulations, Sean, on just being able to organize something at such such scale. Not bad for a kid from Detroit. That's, <laughs> uh, that's, that's great, man. I'd love to ask you two more questions. I know we, we are getting close on time. Th- these are questions I find really helpful to answer, especially for, for young lawyers, but really for lawyers of any age, because you go through law school and there's talk on contract law, property law, constitutional law. You don't really hear many professors talking about being a great lawyer and what being a lawyer actually consists of. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what makes a great lawyer, whether it's their approach to clients, their approach to each other, research, writing, et cetera. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, a great lawyer? Well, I, I teach trial advocacy at law school, you know, how to do openings and closings and cross-examinations and stuff like that. And I know it sounds corny, but the first thing I say is you have to be comfortable with who you are. You know what I mean? And, and, and stay true to you because authenticity is everything. And I make, I give examples. As everybody knows I have a shaved bald head, right? If I had an illustrious thick hair, I'd have it, okay? I accept the fact that I'll never have thick, beautiful hair again in my life. And I'm okay with it, right? Like I'm comfortable in my own skin and not trying to be someone else, not trying to emulate, just find be true to yourself. And I tell young lawyers, the very first moment you are building your reputation, in the very first moment, and the most important advice I could ever give is stay true to your word. If you say something, it's got to be accurate, right? If you, if you don't know the answer, I don't know the answer, John. I'll try to find it for you. Don't bullshit people. Just like people ask me questions and they ask me, like I was on a live stream and someone asked me about, can the SEC appeal the judge's decision and a locatory appeal? And I'm not familiar that much with the, with the Southern District of New York. And I just said, listen, I, I don't know the answer. I'll try to find out and get back to you. Like when people fake it too much is another thing. But I, I take pride in being able, if, if I say to you, Jacob, that I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. Even if it costs me something, I'm going to do it because I said I would do it. And I think that the other things that I'm seeing with young lawyers is no one owes you anything. Don't come to the table with a a sense of self-entitlement ever. Just come to the table and you demand respect and you demand fairness and you demand fair pay and all that. 
but I had a young lawyer that I hired right out of law school recently, and and it was his second day at work, Jacob. And he, I had a meeting. I gave assignments. I said, anybody have any questions? He goes, yeah, John, I have a question for you. I said, what's that? He said, Tuesday's my birthday. What's the Deaton Law Firm do for you on your birthday? <laughs> and I just, I'm usually not speechless, but I, I, I caught myself in that moment being a bit speechless. Wow. You know, it's not like a five-year employee or three-year employee. It's like, hey, John, I can't get my day off or something like that. This is day two. And so I, I would say integrity, your own word, and and earn it. Come to the table willing to earn it. And everything else will play out. You know what I mean? Whether it's clients, there, there's many times with clients, they just want to be told the truth. And I think we get lost sometimes. And the truth, I look a client in the eye and say, if you think your case is worth a million dollars, it's not. And so if, if that's what your expectation is and you're not going to get realistic, then I can't be your law. Things like that, that a lot of people just, they, they hide from the truth too much. And, I, you know, I mean, in our politics today, it's like uh, uh, Fed Powell's just testifying and they, they don't... It's like they don't want to say, we're in for some rough times, people. Mm-hmm. The economy's falling off a cliff, you know what I mean? And I think that that's what's missing in our in our politics, in our legal system, and all of that. Just flat out, no bullshit. This is the truth, whether it hurts you or helps you. It's like when people say about Ripple, well, I don't think they should own 51%. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. That's a fair criticism. I could Maybe there's good things they could do and not do, but like... Where we become so tribalistic, right? It's like a sports team, right? You're rooting for your team. And uh, no matter what the other side does, you hate it. And, and I think we've lost that ability to, uh, to have the civil discourse and disagree. You and I could agree on a lot of things and we could disagree on things, but I'm sure we could talk it out, you know what I mean? And, and, and get to at least understanding each other. And I, I think that that's missing. But you have to have, you have to be willing to have that conversation and engage and you're right. And I, I spoke to Laura Shin, the journalist at Unchained, and, and she wrote Cryptopians as well. And yeah. I asked her what was the biggest threat to crypto. And she said, well, it's the, the people within crypto. It's the maxis. It's the people who are tribalistic, who are willing to do anything for their token to rise to the top, if that means taking down the ecosystem. And really, it is an ecosystem that requires multiple blockchains, multiple users, multiple devs, et cetera, to build what we hope to be a, a more equitable future for, for everyone. And I really like what you said too, because it underpins the importance of long-term thinking. These days, it just seems like, I don't know if you're familiar with that marshmallow test, where it's like, if you eat one, you only get one, but if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get two. Everyone just wants to eat that first marshmallow, do the easy thing. I had plans, but now something better came up this might hurt my relationship long-term, but I want to do the better thing now. And that short-term thinking is is so bad. And I think behind that becomes these habits where if you have a habit of you're going to stick to the plans, you're going to stick to your word. If you said you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Are there any other habits that you've brought into your legal career, even your personal life that have helped you be successful throughout? Because I think that's all we really are at the end of the day. You, you can go after a goal, but unless you have a system in place, you're not going to be able to achieve that. Is there anything that comes to mind for you, John? It, it, it really is. For me, it's, it's just been being a, a person of your word and um, dedicating yourself to what you want and having that, what you're talking about, this long term, right? So, for example, for young lawyers, um, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was super in debt, married, uh, had two children. My wife, ex-wife and my student loans are in you know, six figures. And, and I could have went to a firm that paid me $25,000, $30,000 more a year. But it wasn't what I liked. Right. It was doing some transactional stuff that just didn't fit me. And I took a job at a plaintiff's firm making $30,000 less a year. But I was representing people who served in the military and they got sick from asbestos. And I'm going against the, the sort of the David versus Goliath thing and, and regular people. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to go do what I'm interested in even though I need the money. And, and I think if I work hard, 
and I stay true to myself, my beliefs, it'll work out. Like the money will play out, right? And and that's worked out for me. Doesn't mean I didn't struggle. I, I can tell you I was paying the, the electric bill two weeks late here to make this because I had a, a, a student loan payment, a mortgage payment, a car payment, all of those things. And so I get that, but I stayed true to what I believed in and what I, I knew that if I was happy in what I'm doing, right, and I'm good at it and I'll be good at it because I care, I care. So I, I, I'm going to demand of myself that I'm going to be successful because I have to be. It all played out and it takes longer than you want, right? It took me 10 years longer to think that I was in a financial position that I wanted to be, but I'm a lot happier for it. And so that's what I sort of mean. I know it sounds corny about staying true to yourself and who you are, but uh, but I think it's very important. And that decision, had I taken that, what you're talking about, that short-term goal, where I'd have made that $30,000 more each year for a few years. Yeah, I may have been able to pay more down on my debt sooner, but I'd have been miserable, right? And then I would have probably not been as good at that, right, as a lawyer because I don't care as much. And so I think at the end of the day, we, we all want to be inspired, right? Whether we're inspiring ourselves or we're inspiring other people, we, we want that satisfaction because the bank account's not enough to make you happy. I don't care. I was very, very poor as I described. And I always used to say, Jacob, that that whoever said money can't buy happiness uh, wasn't broke, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Because uh, you think it is. And, and, and so, but at the end of the day, to, to generate true, I think, happiness in your life, you just have to stay true to those things and, and and have faith that it'll work out. Because I do believe that if you're talented and you couple that talent with a great work ethic, you will be successful. It may take you longer, right? You may have to go over some hurdles that you shouldn't do, but eventually it will. You know what I mean? I do, John. I think that's a great spot to end it, man. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. I know we went a little bit over, but I could probably I could probably do another hour. Got so many follow-ups, but hopefully we'll do a part two sometime and stay updated Absolutely. on everything. All right. I, I appreciate it. Thank you.